What's been stated today is week three of Hooked on Love, and we're going to look today, this morning, at God's design for human relationships and sexuality. Um, I hope it's a day that we'll hear truth and experience His grace. That's my prayer uh, for us today. This is, as Daniel mentioned, um, an opportunity for us, really, for the 12 or 13 and older crowd to hear some things, I think, um, of course, I think, I wouldn't be doing this today if I didn't feel like we needed to hear this, just a strong conviction that we needed. Sex is a subject that is powerful and fascinating. It's mysterious. It's exciting. It's remarkable. There comes a time in uh, every parent's life when they fear having the talk with the kid about this subject. Um, incidentally, by way of announcement, I want to let you know, especially families, young families, we have a seminar with experts, doctors, and others in our church that will be addressing this very subject on Wednesday night, October 18th. I believe that that is the date. We're going to have a seminar with a panel of folks to address this, how to talk to your kids about sex. Now, look, I'm a pastor. Uh, I have engaged with some experts. I've read books. I've immersed myself in study, and yet still, uh, I have found it difficult to get Susan to talk to the kids about this very subject. Years ago, uh, I had a friend who really was, uh, was becoming a, a dear friend, and he was not a person of Christian faith. In fact, the formation of our friendship started with questions he had and intrigue he had about the Christian faith, but a lot of skepticism, a, a deal of cynicism. And so we just formed this friendship where he would, we would talk and meet and he would ask questions. And it was just a, it's just been a good friendship. And he softened, I believe, to the things of Christ. His openness seemed to be uh, growing. And I asked him, hoping it was a Holy Spirit moment, I said, what's holding you back? And he said, without missing a beat, it's this whole Judeo-Christian ethic when it comes to sexuality. This idea of wait till marriage and only in marriage, come on. He just couldn't buy into it. He said, he asked me a very intensely personal question. He said, Robert, you have implied the following, but let me just be clear. Were you a virgin when you got married? You snuck your wedding in right when you were turning 30? Were, were you a virgin when you got married? And I said... I swallowed and said, yes, I was a virgin. I was brought up that way. I was taught that sex is a gift. And I was taught to picture it like fire, that it's great and it serves a purpose in its place. That's the way I was raised. I knew that I had impulses. I knew there would be temptations and opportunities and peer pressure, don't you know? But I wanted to reserve this gift for my future mate. So I was a virgin. I mean, we didn't print it on the program or anything, but, but I was a virgin. I waited. And then in that moment, I ask him a question. How is your way working for you? He'd been married and divorced three, uh, soon to be four times, and had a lot of regrets that had built up in his life. So I had the boldness to ask him, how's it working for you? We tell ourselves, beginning at the age, well, I don't know the exact age, but it's when we're young. We began, as this subject is introduced to us, usually it's not by parents, it's almost never by the church. It's by the world and the screens and the internets and the internets, internet, singular, and friends who are a little bit older. We're introduced to this idea that sex is just physical. And it helps. It helps us to think this way if Christ is not Lord of our lives, if we haven't gladly submitted our sexuality to Jesus. 
We tell ourselves sex is just physical. It's just biology. It's just bodies. It's just tissue. It's just nerve endings. It's just urges and impulses. But you get older and then you begin to have this sneaking, sneaking suspicion that maybe sex is not just sex. Maybe indeed it's not physical. I ask you why why do women in many ways, many instances, report more damage by rape than by physical abuse? I've learned in research that women are more apt to report being physically beat up, being the victim of domestic violence, than they are in being raped. Why that sense of shame if sex is just a physical act? Children have been abused or molested sexually in their early years, have grown and become adults and have begun to, though much has been suppressed, they have begun to connect the dots and many cannot seem to get over it. Why, if it's just a physical act? An affair, one spouse betrays another. Why the pain, if it's just a physical act? As a pastor, it's a common experience to hear from some of you And sometimes you will see me and you will begin a sentence, a conversation this way. You will say to me, hey, pastor, I want to share with you a secret that I've never told anybody else. And I just want to give you an inside peek into my world. Nine times out of ten, the secret that is going to be revealed is a sexual secret. Why the secrecy? Why the shame if it's just a physical act? I want to give you three words this morning as a backdrop to this Song of Solomon that I've been pointing you to. We've, been, we've looked at various scripture. We're going to look at a bunch today. But we're anchored in this book, the Song of Songs. And I want to give you three words that will help your understanding of this as well as a, a sexual ethic. The first word is the word no. The word no. Now, how we use the word, how we think of it is different than the ancient Hebrew people and the writings of the Old Testament. The word in the Old Testament, one of the words, there are several, but one of the words that is used for no is this word, yada. And the idea here, as we begin to study it and learn it, is that sex is not cheap. Sex is deep. This word, yada, means to study, to observe, to look intently. And it's this, this truth that sex is sacramental, it's experimental, it is experiential rather, it's sacramental, it's covenantal. It is this promise to learn and to observe and to study and to stay with. The scripture uses this word in relation to a man and a woman and also to God and us. Look at Hosea, I don't know if you know much about this book, Hosea chapter 2 verses 19 to 20. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice and love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness and you will acknowledge the Lord. This is that word, yada. This is that word of knowing. And God, in his word, gives us this example of when we go astray. If you know the story, it's a story of someone who is broken sexually. And God does something that no parent would ever do. God says, hey, go to the prostitute and take her and be faithful to her. And God is showing us that he wants to stay and he wants to remain. And he wants to love us through all of our sinfulness and through all of our brokenness. Yada, God wants to know us. And he desires that we are connected in worship to him. And sex is so much about worship. 
and it is so much about God. In this Song of Songs, while today we won't crack the book and look at specific verses, I want to give you this outline. If you have a phone, you can just take a quick snapshot of this. But in the Song of Songs, we do see, we see erotic love. We see this poem of a man and a woman expressing their heart's desire for each other in very poetic and beautiful language. But it's not a physical act. It's yada. It's a knowing. You see, there's, they're creating companionship. If you read Song of Songs 516, there's the strengthening commitment, Song of Songs 86, and there's the encouraging of passion, Song of Songs 54. My heart is longing after, like, I want you. You, I desire you. I want to be with you. And here is this idea of knowing. God desires that the sexual union demonstrate an abiding, staying, covenantal love. Not something cheap and dismissive. Not a substitute. Not something less. Not something sub. But something genuine. An expression of that. 1 Peter 3. This could be the pain, a source of pain for some of us. But it says, husbands, love your wives. Live with her in an understanding way. Stay with her. Study her. Learn what makes her tick. We were at a marriage conference years ago, true story, an older couple. They've been married many, many years. We were in groups, and the question was asked from the facilitator, from the speaker up front. Hey, what is your, husbands, what is your wife's favorite flower? And this man who'd been married about 30-something years, he said, my wife's favorite flower is gold, metal, all-purpose. <laughs> Study your wife. Learn her and know her. And men, young men, I'm helping you each Sunday here, but learn her favorite flower and speak her language. The beauty of this thing called marriage is the unity of compliments. Husband and wife who are different, but despite those differences that are, that are innate, you come together and you make it happen. Though there is friction, there can, there can become traction and you learn together, but it's covenantal. You stay, you yada, you, you live it out. Strengthening commitment, companionship, and even passion. But the friendship, it needs to be there. So the first word, yada, it, no. The second word is flee. The second word is flee. It's mentioned a few places in Scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I'll read it and make a comment about Corinth. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. This does not mean, this last part, does not mean that God sees sexual sin differently than other sins. But this does mean, I, I I'm not going to take the time to explain it, uh, my understanding of it, but this does mean that there's something about sin and what it does to you. It is, again, not just about sex. But hear this idea, flee. Flee, run, get away. Don't stick around. Don't entertain. Don't acquiesce. Don't think what if. What if, but flee. There's a tragic story found in 2 Samuel. We're going to put the verse up, three of the verses up in just a second. But to give you a little bit of backdrop, David is a king of Israel. And David had some women 
we learned a little bit about this in January and February in our sermon series, Flawed Hero, a look at the life of David. But David had at one point multiple wives and he had uh, kids with these multiple wives. And one of his sons, Amnon, was a son of David and a prince from one wife. And then there's this gal who is um, a son of David, a half-sibling of this man. And listen, every time I mention this in the Meaning of the Bible series, every time we see polygamy, we don't see it as God's approval or condoning of this. Far from it. Every single time we see polygamy in Scripture in the Old Testament, it is, it, it, it is shown to us that it doesn't work. Time and time again, it doesn't work. And here we see in 2 Samuel 13. Am, Amnon became so obsessed with his sister Tamar that he made himself ill. She was a virgin and it seemed impossible for him to do anything to her. He had lust for her. He fantasized about being with her sexually. And he devises a plan. He actually has an advisor. That's what princes have. They had, he had at his disposal an advisor. An advisor came to him one day and said, hey, here's a plan. Here's what you could do. You could call into the palace sick. You could call, you know, call into work sick. Your father, King David, would hear about it, and he would come to check on you because he's a good man, a good dad. He would check on you, and as he's checking on you, you can tell him, hey, I would like uh, my sister, my half-sister, to come be with me, and she can bake me homemade bread, and when she's baking me bread, I can tell her that I like her cooking, and one thing could lead to another. That's how he was advised. Very tragic, 2 Samuel 13 and 14. But he refused to listen to her, and since he was stronger than she, he raped her. She did what they do in those times. She put on ashes on her head. She tore her robe. She mourned the loss of her virginity and the pain, the deep pain of this violation. And 2 Samuel 13, 15 says the following. Then Amnon hated her with intense hatred. This is a strange verse. In fact, he hated her more than he had loved her. Amnon said to her, get up and get out. If you're 21 and older, you probably understand this, right? Strange, but do you get it? This is teaching us what some of us know after a cheap thrill or after a violation, after being outside of the order that God intended. What we thought would satisfy leaves us empty. What we thought would bring intimacy leaves us very hollow and ill. He was ill in wanting her and lusting for her. And he was ill after he got her and after he got her in the manner in which he did. There's a pain that's associated with not doing things God's way. I want to share with you what Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 4 says. And I realize this is a narrow road. It says in Hebrews 13, 4, marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure. For God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Now I want to ask you, who's the judge? Answer out loud if you will. Who's the judge? God is the judge. I'm not the judge. You're not the judge. The guys that hang out on Friday nights and Fondren over here outside Fondren Public with the signs of hate and all, they're not the judges. We need to get off that pedestal. 
We need to remove ourselves from the place of judgment. I don't judge. Religious people, we have a penchant for judging, but we ought not. There is James chapter 4 says there's only one lawgiver and one judge. And so I humbly, without any holier-than-thou attitude, I submit to you that this is God's plan. This is what God intends to truly protect us and to provide for us. In this context. But I do want to point you to what the passage says. And I do want to say something that's hard. But I tell you because I love you. And it is a warning. And I want God's grace to flow behind it. But when you do things your way. When you say that God's way is foolish and awkward and antiquated and primitive and not for modern people. When you believe that, you are bringing God's curse upon your life. This is important for everyone that wants to follow Jesus. It's important to realize. And I understand that it is not popular. But we are told to honor this place. And we're told to flee, to be careful. Years ago, I heard a pastor talk about being at church when they had Wednesday services. There was a very attractive young lady that was going through a divorce who, through his assistant, set up a meeting with him in his office. The assistant was right outside. There were glass doors. There was accountability. But the woman kept hanging out after church week after week and talking to the pastor. And one night after a Wednesday night service, this woman found herself, she didn't, he found her in his office. And she was standing there with a provocative look on her face. And she walked toward him. And to his knowledge, no one, was in, no one else was on this floor. And she said to him, whispered to him seductively, no one has to know. And this pastor, he's a famous guy. This pastor said he paused. He considered, in a matter of seconds, the invitation, the repercussions. And he told a group of younger pastors, of which I was one, he said, hey men, I passed the test, but not with an A. To flee means when you know there's a temptation, to get out, to remove yourself. It's my prayer for my life, following in the footsteps of someone who's meant a lot to me as a mentor, I have with me just warnings of consequences. Because a man is honestly, is impulsive and is physical and is raw. And sometimes we don't think about what could follow behind the thrill. It's important for me to flee. What would happen? What would the consequences be if I was unfaithful? To my Susan. Number one, I would cause untold hurt to her. I would lose her respect and her trust and possibly lose her. I would cause deep hurt and confusion in R.J., Haley, and Wesley, who may never understand why I traded it in them in for a thrill. I would bring shame on my own mother and father. I would harm our staff, maybe even jeopardizing their employment here and promoting cynicism in their own hearts as younger leaders. I would bring shame and judgment on the woman that I committed adultery with. I would cause shame to you, my church family. I would enable laughter and smugness of those who are critics of the church. And most importantly, I would grieve my Savior 
and have to explain to him why all the beauty he had given me was not enough. To flee. To see the good gift that he has given me. So all around this room, lower level, even up in the balcony, our 930 service in here at 11. There's sin and there's secrets and there's sexual sin. So just for a moment, anybody skeptical about me being a religious proselytizer, about me being primitive and anti-intellectual, I want to share with you from a few thinkers. First of all, this from a book, Hooked, that I would recommend to anyone outside of God's way sexually. In this book, this is from neuroscientists, both doctors, and they say this. The individual who goes from sex partner to sex partner, causing his or her brain to mold in such a way that eventually accepts that sexual pattern as normal, the pattern of changing sex partners therefore damages their ability to bond in committed relationships. The kind of attachment damage caused by repeated sexual encounters is in many respects more devastating than unwanted pregnancy or STDs. Repeated sexual encounters, it hinders our ability to form lifelong and satisfying relationships. Pause for a second. Do you see what I'm saying here? Not people of faith, no religious motivation, just talking about the human brain. Maybe God does have a better way. Maybe he does want to protect you from something and provide for you. Naomi Wolf, also not a follower of Jesus. She's a radical, super self-imposed title here, super radical feminist. And here's what she has stated. No man has ever gorged himself on porn and then put it behind him after marriage because his wife met all of his porn fantasies. Instead, the opposite happened. It's done in secret. It's so easily accessible. But there's a cost. We say it's a cheap thrill. But it's more. It's actually damaging your neural pathways. It's leading to less bonding. A guy named Andy Stanley that some of you know talked about three things related to the effects of porn. Porn does three things. Makes you conclude, one, a real body isn't good enough. Two, only one body isn't good enough. And three, your wife's body isn't good enough. I do want to say, because I've been gently rebuked when I've spoken publicly about this subject before, but porn is not just a man's problem. Increasingly, it's also a woman's problem. Just as, conversely, eating disorders are not just a woman's problem. But chiefly, bulimia and anorexia, two major eating disorders, is built on the assumption that beauty and identity is established through size and shape. And there are effects. There are effects of getting outside of God's path. There are effects of saying, hey, I don't have to flee. I'm going to stay right here. And we have, we have much to learn. This is a warning and this is a challenge. I'm married. I'm raising three kids, one of whom is a daughter. And when there are restaurants named Hooters and Twin Peaks, and when we have music that over and over says bitches and hoes regarding women, we have a long way to go as a society. 
And I ask you, where should we be as a church? What is our view of sexuality? What secrets do we keep? For purposes of being a pastor and for forming a bond with a new friend, I attended a men's group where men sit in a circle. This is for Greater Jackson, of men in the community, men that did represent a variety of churches, a couple who had uh, just lost their leadership place in these churches. And to listen to the raw sexual confessions was both painful, yet also emboldening to me to know that when we move from darkness into the light, that truly help and healing can be unleashed. It can be unleashed in us. We do need to flee. We do need to be careful. There are effects. In fact, in Romans 6, I'd love for you to read this later. I believe it's Romans six nineteen. It says that sin is ever increasing. Its effects are ever increasing. When we think, oh, nobody's being damaged here. Nobody's being hurt. By the way, can I ask you, anyone locked in the grip that need a challenge, how satisfying is it to look at a computer screen? To play with yourself. To substitute that for intimacy. The first word is no, yada, to be in a relationship where there's a deep connection. In fact, the Hebrew phrase there for yada is also translated mingling of souls. If some of you are aware of Matt Chandler and a great book he wrote on marriage called Mingling of Souls, I would, I would recommend that very thing. So no, flee, and the last word we're about to close is free. Free. To be free. To understand to understand His grace. To let it wash over you. Hebrews chapter 11 gives for us a, it's called Faith's Hall of Fame. Some of you men love sports and you've attended maybe a Hall of Fame. I went recently with two of my kids to Atlanta to see the college football Hall of Fame. But in Hebrews 11, there's Faith's Hall of Fame. And we see Moses and Abraham and Noah and Gideon and Samuel and David. And listen, Rahab the prostitute. Now, her occupation is the only one mentioned in Hebrews 11. It doesn't say David the king or Gideon the judge or Samuel the priest or Abraham the rancher. It says Rahab the prostitute. Why? His grace. God's grace. God's grace that I want to speak over you today. Romans 8.1 tells us that in Christ there is therefore no more condemnation. You can be free of the shame and the regret. And that freedom, Jesus taught it long ago. Read John 8. Jesus taught it long ago. And social scientists and psychologists and experts are telling us how true it is. But when we know and experience acceptance, it leads to greater, greater satisfaction in our lives. And God is grace. God's grace is big enough to cover 
what you have covered up. And I want to speak that over you. Fawner Church is full of single people. I wouldn't want to be around Fawner Church without our single people. You make it what it is. And I want to tell you that it's an idol. It can be such an idol to say, I'm not happy. In fact, there's an old Dean Martin song, you're nobody until you have somebody to love. And you know, in a way that's true because nobody here needs to go unloved. But not everybody here is called to be married. And not everybody here is called to be married right now in this season. And 1 Corinthians 7 talks about how a man, husband and wife ought to give themselves to each other. And how single people, for a season at least, have been given a gift. And the gift could include freedom and even a greater service to the kingdom. And I just want to speak over that as we're talking about God's design for relationships and sexuality. That everybody, single or married, is called to submit their sexuality. 1 Corinthians 6, 18 Flee sexual immorality. Does anybody know what the rest of the verse says? I'm not going to take anybody to lunch. Anybody know what the rest of the verse says? It says, for you have been bought with a price. Your body is not your own. So I've been given a gift for 21 years. I've been given a gift where in that, in this marriage, sexuality can be and should be expressed in healthy ways. Years ago, my wife connected with a woman who became one of her dear friends. And this woman is married to a pastor. And you know what they would do for a couple of years? They would meet and talk, they would laugh, and they would talk about this gift, and they would talk about their husbands and temptation and ministry and pressure and how they're different for their husbands. And they taught, they kind of mentored each other on how to keep the home fires burning and how to make it fun and keep it fun. And when I read this poem in the Bible, God's inspired word of erotic love, I'm grateful for her and what we have. There have been seasons with kids and unpaid deals, bills and dirty dishes where the yada was not what it used to be. But God is teaching us to grow together in this spiritual union. And I look at so many young couples with kids and you just won't stop making babies. So something's happening behind closed doors. But a lot isn't happening. And I said it last week, but proximity doesn't guarantee intimacy. We're close. We live together. We eat together. We sleep together. We travel together. But we feel so distant. And God wants to give us this gift of intimacy. But I want to warn some of you. Don't bring his curse on your life. Do it his way. I don't judge you. I do not judge you. God is the one lawgiver. And the one judge. But for some of you, there's deep, deep sexual confusion. So I want to close with this. In fact, won't you stand? We're going to pray in a second.
This from Pastor Kyle Eidelman. The God of sex promised us satisfaction, yet it left us lonely and ashamed. He lured and enticed us by distorting what was designed to be a gift and a blessing. He made it seem as if nothing could be more satisfying than the quick release of physical urges. Yet nothing could have left us feeling smaller and weaker as if those urges defined who we were, as if we were beasts of the field and no more. Then we came to Jesus who offers the greatest joy imaginable, so much greater and fuller than any physical impulse. We could see for the first time that the pursuit of the God of sex was never about love at all. It reduced others to mere objects to be used for our personal pleasure. But the love of Jesus finds its greatest satisfaction in service rather than use of others. It exalts them. It affirms them as children of God. It connects with them in body, soul, mind, and spirit rather than simple base instinct. Jesus is our satisfaction. All along it was intimacy we really wanted and he gives us that. When we have a love relationship with him, an unending honeymoon commences. Christ grows more wonderful to us every day. Not that sex is put aside. On the contrary, it takes on a beauty and a resonance we could never have imagined. The opposite of shame. We have been designed so that the level of intimacy we can have with our spouse is directly related to the depth of intimacy we have with Christ. Sexual intimacy as God designed it takes a human relationship to a whole new level. Because we're not using one another, we're delighting in one another. The God of sex dehumanized us. Christ restores our wholeness and makes the two of us one flesh. So much the greater than the sum of our parts as we seek Him together. The God of sex offers a counterfeit joy that becomes more elusive through time, even harder to please, even closer to emptiness. But the love of Christ only opens up to deeper joys becoming even greater. Sexual pleasure, rightly viewed, is a rich gift that shows how much God loves us. But its ecstasy is only a foretaste of divine glory, a hint of the eternal pleasure of knowing, loving, and serving Christ, our true satisfaction.